Welcome back to what is this, the fourth in my Stanley Steve Ditko retrospective. After launching the first of an epic and almost unheard of three part story with issue 17, Stanley and Steve Ditko continued the unprecedented run of greatness with part two of the Spider Man Coward arc, which originally appeared in Amazing Spider Man issue 18, cover dated November 1964. The cover by Ditko is magnificent in both its rendering and colouring. Spider-Man cowers in an alleyway, hiding behind discarded newspapers and old plywood from his old foe, the Sandman, who can be seen in the background running amok. Only Marvel would dare to attempt such a tale. The end of Spider-Man runs the hyperbolic cover copy. The story you never expected to read. Why does Spider-Man cringe in helpless fear as the evil Sandman stalks the city street? Be prepared for countless surprises in this great, offbeat and dramatic issue. Stan's enthusiasm for this story is, once again, not exaggerated. Everything about this cover is magnificent from the composition. Spider-Man in the front of the frame, but kneeling down amidst the discarded soup cans, whilst down the alley, Sandman can be seen gleefully running free. The way he oozes sand with every step as he calls Spider-Man out shows his confidence, in sharp contrast to Spider-Man's perceived cowardice. Ditko manages to draw a cover that gives the reader everything they need to know, whilst not giving away the whys and the wherefores of the story. The End of Spider-Man was written by Stan, with illustrations by Steve, and letters by Sam Rosen. The issue opens with a truly terrifying image of a grinning J. Jonah Jameson, pointing directly out of the page at the reader, gloating about the way Spider-Man fled in supposed terror from the Green Goblin last issue. Behind Jonah, the Green Goblin fires his finger bangers at Spider-Man as he runs away. With rapidity, we learn the reaction of heroes, villains, and the general populace to Spider-Man's predicament. Oddly, only Dr. Octopus seems to be in jail, with the Vulture and Craven both free, which doesn't really match up with where we last left them. Craven's overconfidence is still in evidence, with him still believing he could hunt Spider-Man down, even if he has turned coward. The Goblin gloats about this making him world-famous, which would seem to be counter to his plans to be the secret ruler of a worldwide criminal empire. The Goblin seemed unsure as to whether he wanted to be a clandestine figure or more overt in most of his stories, but his costume and ego implies that he'd rather be known for what he's done. The heroes are more confused by the events, although the Wasp is a complete bitch, due to the Wasp's natural hatred of spiders. Somebody needs to get this woman a reality check. We're quickly shown that Spider-Man hasn't been seen in weeks, because Peter Parker has been attending school, and then spending all of his spare time looking after Aunt May, who it seems is now home from the hospital, but still in recovery. There's a lot going on in this issue, and it's all handled extremely well. Peter's dropped being Spider-Man cold turkey to look after the only family he has left. There is no better demonstration of Peter's devotion to responsibility than this, and it's perfectly in keeping with Peter and his attitude. Nothing is more important to him than family. It's an important part of his character that has been forgotten as the strip has gone on, and even ignored in order to keep the strip going long past its natural end point. I've long said the minute Peter is married and has kids, he will give up being Spider-Man. Some people argue that policemen and firemen don't give up when they have children, but to me this is a false argument. 
The greatest responsibility a husband and a father has is to his wife and children. And part of that responsibility is providing for them. Part of that is working for a living. Firefighters and the police are doing a job. A dangerous job, sure, but a job that provides for the family. Spider-Man isn't a job. And as we see here, the minute a bigger responsibility arises, Peter chucks it in without a second thought. The school life drama is also well-mined. The cohort are massive pricks to Peter, even though they clearly know about his aunt's illness. Liz even asks how she is. Granted, she follows this up by asking him out on a date to the new Peter Sellers movie, but hey, teenagers are fickle. Once again, we see the argument that Peter brought a lot of this on himself, put forth by Flash and writer Peter David, to be utter bunk. Peter isn't being a jerk here. He simply got lots of other things on his mind. And the other classmates know it, yet they still bully and berate him. Peter's reaction to Liz is also telling. He thinks she's nothing more than a sweet kid, even though they are the same age. Clearly, Peter's maturity and life experience have aged the lad more than he thought. Again, this is true to life. We all know the 16-year-old who acts like they are 30, just as we all know the 25-year-old who still acts like they're 15. In true Spider-Man fashion, Peter's problems are mounting up. He's out of money and May's out of medicine. I have to confess, as a kid, this always confused me. I was used to the NHS that provides medicine for only a small prescription charge and the monthly contributions that all working adults must pay. It would be many years before I learned that the US system was significantly different and illnesses like May's could run Peter back many hundreds of dollars. As such, Spider-Man must take to the skies again and Peter hits upon the idea of selling exclusive rights for Spider-Man trading cards. Sadly, with Spider-Man's reputation in the toilet, the card manufacturers aren't interested. This is a great scene, culminating in the card manufacturer blowing smoke in Spider-Man's face and telling him to take a hike. Ditko milks Spidey's desperation for all it's worth, having him showing off in an effort to attract the attention of the deal with a brilliant panel of Spider-Man performing acrobatics so quickly, four of him are visible on the panel. On his way home, a disappointed Spider-Man spots a robbery. Worried what will happen to Aunt May if something would happen to him, he finds a telephone box and calls the police. Yet another startlingly different and stunning scene Ditko lets loose with some great panels. His depictions of Spider-Man first crawling on a wall with his head tilted, then pausing just before he's about to leap, show just how different a character Spider-Man was, and how his power set lent itself to different and intriguing layouts. The other panel is more interesting. Spider-Man stands on a wall horizontally, as the wall is vertical, as he rummages through his pants for some money. I can only assume that Spider-Man's leg muscles must be phenomenal. Returning home, Peter finds Anna Watkins, presumably Anna Watson in disguise, looking after May as Doc Bromwell makes a house call. He tells Peter that as long as she keeps taking her medicine, she'll be fine. This doesn't make Peter feel much better, neither does his call to Betty at the Bugle, who's still not speaking to him after seeing Liz all over him at the Spider-Man fan club meet last issue. The heavy mood of the issue is lightened in these scenes by Jonah's antics. The Bugle seems to have gained some extra staff members that are all horrified by Jonah being cheery. I love him telling Betty to send May a card, but leave it open as it's a penny cheaper. Ditko uses many visual cues to highlight Peter's mood. Normally a snappy, if dated, dresser, Peter here has unkempt her and his shirt is unfashioned. He sits fretting about his problems, reminiscing about all the times he's cheated death in an unabashed plug for Amazing Spider-Man Annual 1, which I presume was still on sale. A lot of people put Peter down for the amount that he would mope, but let's be honest, he has a lot of problems in this issue. And none of them are trivial or simple teenage stuff that we look back on as adults and wonder what we were bothered about. His money problems are that he can't afford to buy records, 
but to a necessary expense incurred by having a sick relative. His mind is distracted not by girls, although Betty is looming large, but the very real possibility that the only mother he has ever known could die. These are heady topics for a man as young as Peter, and set the strip apart from its contemporaries. Only the Thing in the Fantastic Four has an equal claim to the title quintessential Marvel character as Spider-Man. The next day, Peter tries to talk to Betty, but Betty ignores him. These scenes don't really paint Betty in the best of lights. She knows what Peter is going through. She is, after all, the one who tells Jonah why Peter hasn't sold photos of late. But she still ignores him over what happened with Liz. Peter, still in need of money, heads over to the science lab to offer them a deal on his webbing. However, the temporary state of the webbing causes the science team to decline. This is an interesting scene in retrospect. A lot of fans, for whom the suspension of disbelief only goes as far as a boy being bitten by a radioactive spider and inheriting its powers, have frequently cried foul over the webbing, claiming, rather ridiculously and loudly, that Peter creating it was too much of a step into science fiction for such a grounded strip of Spider-Man. As I've noted before, the creators clearly thought about this. Electing not to have Peter shoot webs out of his arse and replace it with a mechanical version instead was a stroke of genius, not creative bankruptcy. A much further criticism is why the perpetually cash-strapped Peter Parker never sold his magic goo. Stan and Steve here provide an answer. I know I bang this drum a lot, lovely listener, but in an era where access to the internet means everybody seems to feel they know better than the professionals, it's worth repeating that Stan and Steve did seem to know what they were doing. Peter even muses that he probably could make his webbing permanent, but at the moment he just doesn't have the time. He needs money. Now! It's not a perfect answer, but it is at least an answer. Spider-Man leaves only to bump into the Sandman. Rather than stand and fight, Spider-Man first tries to talk the Sandman out of it, and, when that doesn't work, turns and flees. In a comic of great moments, this is a high point. Ditko's art is frenetic and fast-paced as Spider-Man leaps and bounds around downtown New York, and Jonah witnessing the whole thing is just delicious. Spider-Man flees into an alley and changes back to Peter Parker, just as the Sandman pops his head around the corner to ask if Peter has seen Spider-Man, which is a comedy highlight. Granted, Jonah didn't have a cameraman with him, so where he got the news footage he uses later is unexplained, as is why Jonah now has a TV news show. Given the amount Jonah is on TV, I presume he has a cable access show of some kind, or that's my no-prize explanation for it anyway. Johnny Storm refuses to be convinced of Spider-Man's cowardice, and tries to arrange a meet with our wall-crawling wonder at the Statue of Liberty. This is another great character beat, emphasising what this strip did best. Let's be brutally honest, this issue is rather repetitive if we look at it clinically, but all of these moments are leading somewhere. This is the middle part of a trilogy, it's when everything looks really bad for our hero and there looks to be no way out. Peter's problems are portrayed as to be insurmountable and everything is conspiring against him. But this also shows that Johnny cares about Spider-Man. A connection between the two exists simply because they are of similar ages and in the same job. It's a nice touch, giving depth to Johnny as a character, as well as giving Spider-Man a much-needed ally. Lovely art as well, particularly the sun setting behind the Statue of Liberty as the torch sits there, waiting for Spider-Man to arrive. Later on, Liz then drops by Peter's house and tells Peter that Flash has gone and done something stupid. Again. He's took the Spider-Man costume he used in issue 5 and gone to rebuild Spider-Man's damaged reputation. Peter asks Liz to stay with May and goes in search of Flash. Flash has found a gang of carjackers and tries to stop them, only to get his head handed to him. Fortunately, the police happen by, preventing Flash from being seriously injured. Showcasing Lee and Ditko's ability to show Flash in a good light, even an issue like this one, this scene is wonderfully drawn by Ditko. 
He differentiates Flash from Peter with deft use of body language. Flash is stockier than Peter, and the way he holds himself is completely different, which just shows Ditko's command of the fall. Flash losing his costume is played for laughs, but there's an underlying seriousness to it. Flash could have gotten really hurt here, and the next day at school he isn't even speaking to Liz. Instead, Flash chooses to pick a fight with any who may have a problem with what he did. A definite case of Flash overcompensating. It's worth noting that Liz stays with May whilst Peter goes looking for Flash, proving that Peter had a lot of girls in his life long before Gwen and Murray Jane. Still, Peter only worrying about himself whilst looking for Flash is a bit selfish, but let's not forget he is still a teenager. He's allowed a few character flaws. Still, his pain is keenly felt when he sees Betty out with another man, the first appearance of Ned Leeds. Betty seems a bit cruel here. She and Peter haven't actually broken up, and a few pages ago she was crying herself to sleep over Peter. Peter's conclusion that this is all Spider-Man's fault is erroneous, though. None of what's going on at the moment has anything to do with Spider-Man, really. Peter is lashing out, which is understandable, and he tosses his costume in the dustbin. Going downstairs, he sees May has gotten out of her wheelchair, and May tells him to stop fretting. Parkers don't give up when the going is tough. That's when the Parkers get going. This speech kicks Peter in the ass. He realises that everybody has it tough, and vows enough with the self-pity. Fate gave him a destiny, and from now on, he will follow it. Spider-Man is back. What an ending. After dumping on Peter for 19 pages, a pep talk from Aunt May's what it takes to bring Peter out of his funk. There are a few minor niggles. For example, if Peter really needed money quickly, there was nothing stopping him still taking pictures and just not involving himself as Spider-Man. This doesn't detract from a great issue, though, and one that is remarkably daring for its time. Spider-Man isn't at all heroic in this story. Instead, running and avoiding problems were possible. Peter has exceptionally good reason for what he's doing, and the audience sympathise with him, which runs contrary to everything we're told to root for in serialised superhero fiction. Character is emphasised over plot in this issue. The plot itself is quite repetitive, as I noted, but it's all in services of a larger narrative, and what set this strip apart from many superhero books, even Marvel books, of the time. Issue 19 picks up the plot. The cover is a montage, a much-used shot of Spider-Man swings in the middle, bursting through his webbing. Around him, images of the Human Torch, Sandman and the Enforcers. Whilst the art is fine and the image of Spider-Man would become a popular clip art image, what makes this striking is the use of colour. The white background is exceptionally well used against the colours, not only of the costumes, but of the cover copy. An adventure epic of compelling excellence it runs, Spidey strikes back brimming with great guest stars such as the Human Torch, the Sandman, the Evil Enforcers. I don't know if I'd go so far as to call the Sandman and the Evil Enforcers guest stars, really, given that they're the villains of the piece, but I presume Stan knew what he was doing at this point. The splash page is, as has become the norm, better than the cover. The Sandman and the Enforcers team up against Spider-Man and the Torch. Our heroes are not doing too well. The Torch is trapped by Montana's lasso and about to be smothered by the Sandman. Spider-Man is being dogpiled on by Fancy Dan and the Ox. It is a stunning piece of art, worthy of inclusion in Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1. With J. Jonah Jameson still banging the Spider-Man is all washed up drum, our hero swings back into action to make up for lost time. This is a great opening and a great action beat. Spider-Man runs into some brazen crooks who have just robbed the Midtown Bank. Like a streak of light, he arrives just in time to hand these men their heads in most entertaining fashion. 
The gags are fast and furious, and Spider-Man leaps around like a man possessed. Ditko is at his very best here, with another of his stunning panels showing Spider-Man leaping around so quick that we see multiple copies of him. But my favourite is the panel where Spider-Man runs along the side of the wall instead of up it. He runs parallel to the crooks, punching each one in the head as he goes past them. He doesn't, however, spot the lookout, and this one runs off before Spider-Man can spot him to warn the boss. Yes, this rather brazen robbery committed in broad daylight was not a mere whim, but was the brainchild of the Sandman and his new gang, the Enforcers. This was probably the issue's only weak spot, as I've never bought the Sandman as being the brains of anything, let alone the leader and mastermind of a gang. News quickly spreads of Spider-Man's reappearance. J. Jonah Jameson has a funny bit where he's about to give a lecture entitled How I Expose Spider-Man as a Cowardly Fraud when his obsequious assistant informs him of Spider-Man's recent thwarting of the robbery. Ditko portrays Jameson's face falling magnificently over three panels and we next see Jonah punching a wall as the human torch flies past. Scenes like this were always appreciated. It was very easy to portray Jonah as a caricature, a blustering blowhard whose only function was to be Spider-Man's foil, and even playing him strictly as comic relief is preferable to that. Jonah's been having a field day over Spider-Man's problems of late, so seeing him brought low again is, I'm not going to lie, satisfying. Having the torch fly by and witness this, and even funnier, not believing that it is Jameson, shows how integrated the Marvel Universe had become. Of course, this isn't just a gratuitous cameo, but rather a canny scene transition. The Torch, plum tuckered out after yet another stupid Strange Tales adventure, is attacked by Montana and the Ox. Even a bit knackered, the Torch tosses off a fireball or two. But then Fancy Dan, who has apparently been hiding, blasts him with a chemical foam, dousing the Torch's flame. The Sandman then smothers the Torch, and they whisk him off to their lure. Now, I'll be honest, I've already dissed on the Sandman for not exactly being burdened with an overabundance of brains, but this was a pretty good plan. Montana and the Ox distract the Torch, Fancy Dam eliminates the threat of his powers, and the Sandman knocks him out. Maybe Sandman had it in him after all. The panel of him just draining his sandy frame all over the Torch is really effective and quite chilling. Being drowned in sand is not a pleasant way to go. The Sandman and the Enforcers are so confident they aren't even concerned about Spider-Man being back on the scene. Speaking of our hero, let's check in on him the next day at school. Flash is cock of the walk again after Spidey's back-making headlines, although Liz is still giving him the cold shoulder for how he treated her. Peter is back to being the butt of his ire. To be fair, there's nothing really different about any of this, although it's nice to see Liz standing up to Flash more. There is a very funny line when Peter tells Aunt May he's glad she didn't die as he'd hate to have to eat anyone else's pancakes. In one of the weaker plot developments, though, Peter leaves school and, whilst walking home, just happens to wander past Fancy Dan, who sets his spider senses a-tingling. I'm all for turning a blind eye to coincidence in comics, but sometimes they're hard to ignore. Peter dons his spider togs and follows Dan to the lure. Interestingly, Sandman's gang isn't just him and the Enforcers, but a whole host of crooks. This was a nice surprise, one I think I'd like to have seen more of. There follows a typically visually interesting Ditko fight scene. The Ox uses Fancy Dan as a cannonball at one point to knock Spider-Man off the ceiling. And Spider-Man shows his metal easily handling three men at once in a dizzying panel where he shucks Dan off his back while simultaneously double-punching two thugs. This is also notable in that Spider-Man never once uses his webs in this fight, instead demonstrating his acrobatic skill and smarts. The ruckus attracts the attention of the police, and the crooks flee. 
With the enforcers managing to disappear into the crowd, Spider-Man heads for home. After all, he knows where they are now. He's pretty sure he can pick up the trail later. He wanders over to the Daily Bugle as Peter Parker to try and flog some photos, but is instead greeted by Betty and her new beau Ned Leeds. Ned and Peter are almost too pleasant to each other, which is a wonderfully subtle piece of writing from Stan. In this situation, we know from experience that both men are sizing each other up, but don't want to appear jerks in front of Betty. Still, Peter seems to be taking this almost too easily, given how he feels for her, and we'll just chalk this up to Peter trying to act cool. Elsewhere, the Enforcers and Sandman have the torch in a tube that has just enough oxygen in it for Johnny to breathe, but if he tries to flame on, the air evaporates and Johnny blacks out. Again, this is far too clever an idea for the Sandman to have thought of. Spider-Man goes about tracking them down via a stool pigeon who grasses up the Sandman far too quickly. Spider-Man realises that it's a trap, but like Obi-Wan Kenobi thinks the best way to avoid a trap is to walk right into it. The image of Spider-Man in panel 3 of page 13 would be reused in the FF annual where Reed and Sue marry, perhaps because any time Jack Kirby drew Spider-Man it never looked quite right. To Spider-Man's credit, he doesn't just blunder into the trap, instead choosing to check out the situation before leaping ahead. He clocks where all the guards and lookouts are, and then slowly, and with stealth, sneaks around above, below, and around them. This is an incredible suspenseful set of panels, with Ditko having Spidey break in under the crook's noses. Excellent use of light and shadow here as well, as we've come to expect from Ditko, including the use of one of those brilliant panels where Ditko hides Spider-Man in the blackness by turning the blue highlights of his costume black. I always loved it when they did that. Spider-Man locates the torch, but once again showing hitherto untapped intelligence, the Sandman has spread himself all over the top of the tube, catching Spider-Man on a worse. Spider-Man still has time to hang up his camera, though, and given how often he does this in front of villains, I do wonder why none of them ever called him on it. The action is pretty relentless from this point on, but what great action it is. Ditko portrays Spider-Man as a constantly moving ball of energy, bouncing from panel to panel with such speed that the enforcers can barely lay a hand on it. Under Ditko's pencil, Spider-Man's reputation as a whirling dervish that never stopped was firmly cemented. High points from this skirmish include Spider-Man pulling the lasso that tied around his arm to pull Montana off balance, Spider-Man avoiding Sandman's hammer-shaped fists, and especially page 16 were even off balance, Spider-Man manages to knock out multiple thugs. Of course, when he has to get down and dirty, he does so, punching the ox squirrely in the stomach with visible force and then laying him out with a follow-up knockout punch. Then he avoids the Sandman and hurls himself head over heels at the tube, smashing it and freeing the Human Torch. Once again, take a moment to marvel at Ditko's command of motion. Montana's lasso isn't a stiff, immovable thing. It's a constantly flexing and writhing thing like a snake. Likewise, the Sandman is constantly oozing all over the place, changing form as swiftly as Spider-Man can move. If Spider-Man himself is constantly moving, so are his adversaries, tossed around like cakes at a children's party, but always pressing their advantage with flailing punches and kicks. Ditko was an absolute master of fight scenes like this, with each event following with adroit progression of storytelling. Ditko's fights aren't simply stiff, posed events. They follow on in true sequential style. With the torch free, he and Spidey start to turn the tables, and although they make a pretty good team in the first instance, they quickly start getting under each other's feet. This ably demonstrates that, for all his skill, Spider-Man is not used to working with a partner, and he not only stops the torch tackling the Sandman alone, he even tangles the torch in his webbing, allowing Sandman to get away. The torch uses his powers well here, focusing his Nova Blast through his fist to let him burn the webbing. 
This isn't the cop-out it appears to be, given that we've seen Spider-Man's webbing as being fireproof before. Rather, it shows that Johnny can overcome it with concentration. This delay causes Sandman to escape, which gives us the only weak part of the story. The police corner Sandman, and despite a wonderful sequence of panels where Sandman oozes around the cops in a manner akin to the T-1000, he simply gives up because he's tired. This was presumably a sop to the comics code, and I can go with it because of the quality of the rest of the issue, but it's still a bit of a weak ending. What's not weak is Spider-Man and the Torch renewing their antagonism. Spider-Man is a stubborn mule, refusing to tell the Torch what happened last month to cause him to flee, despite the Torch being genuinely concerned, although Spider-Man doesn't know that. With all this done and dusted, all that's left is the wrap-up. What's unusual in this case is that for the first time, the wrap-up is on page 21. Peter drops by the bugle to drop off his pictures and the usual comedy hijinks with Jonah play out. Peter then asks Betty out to celebrate this infusion of cash, but she demurs in favour of Ned. Peter seems completely unconcerned by this, bids both her and Ned good night, and leaves, smiling. This felt wrong, given how Peter has been so wrapped up in Betty in previous issues, but it makes sense, perhaps, that Peter just wouldn't wish to make a scene in the workplace. Betty's reaction is more curious. She's upset that Peter is unconcerned and even secretly hoped he'd be jealous. Whilst it's easy to read Betty as manipulative here, this is actually a pretty truthful reaction to these events. Both parties have drifted apart, but still have feelings for each other. And Betty, in trying to make Peter feel bad, is actually showing she still has feelings for him. Had Peter made a challenge for Betty and not acted so cool, would they have stayed together? Unusually, we get no thoughts from Peter on this matter. He's genuinely not bothered, and he's even seen to be flirting with Liz a little later. John Q. Citizen all have a scene where they think these Spider-Man coward headlines was all just a marketing ploy from the Daily Bugle to sell newspapers, and then we get that most glorious of Silver Age tropes, the talking building. The Baxter building, in this case, wrapping up the taut aspect of the issue. For all intents and purposes, this story is over, but the remaining two-thirds of the page show Peter being pursued by a mysterious figure. He follows Peter home, and when the lights are out, telephones another man. This man wants Peter watched at all times, and when the truth is revealed, that's when he'll strike. This is an epic and groundbreaking three-part story that never seems to get the plaudits of other stories of this era, such as the Master Planner arc and the Galactus trilogy, despite predating both and being better in terms of construction than the latter. This is clearly a three-part tale, with each part being an act in the drama that successfully forwards the story towards its inevitable but satisfying climax. Everything that is set up in the early parts is paid off later, and Ditko's pacing is second to none. Lee is also at the top of his game. He lets the art tell the story, rarely falling into the trap of telling us what we are seeing. I think Ditko was the first artist, even before Jack Kirby, that Lee trusted to tell the story with the art, and he didn't feel the need to spoon-feed us what was happening. Whilst this is as important in terms of Marvel's development as the aforementioned classic stories, what I think causes it to be eclipsed in polls is that, in terms of stakes, this just isn't as large. This is an internal story. This is all about Peter and his devotion to his family, and that's not as big a hook as Galactus is about to eat Earth. It also doesn't have a groundbreaking set piece, such as the famous Master Planet underwater sequence. What this does have, though, is heart. Great big heaping gobs of heart. And I think it's a seminal arc in the Spider-Man legend. The cover to Amazing Spider-Man 20 is also magnificently coloured. 
There's a dark green sky that fades away over the harbour, and New York can be seen to the right. The central image of a green-garbed figure picking up Spider-Man with ease dominates, and it looks like this new figure is about to hurl Spider-Man off a building. Spider-Man is trying to spin his web, but this new adversary swipes at Spidey's arm with his tail. How can Spider-Man battle a foe who is stronger than he is? asks the cover copy. This is obviously a very serious question, as it has three question marks. You're about to meet one of Marvel's newest, greatest arch-villains, the Scorpion. Despite the eye-catching colour scheme, this isn't one of Ditko's best compositions. Unusually for Ditko, both Spider-Man and the Scorpion look a tad stiff, although the darker hues to both their costumes add a little something to the image. The Coming of the Scorpion, which sounds a bit rude, or Spidey Battle Scorpion, which is a stupid title, gives Ditko top billing, although Stan's name is larger and in red. This, Stan says in the captions, is because readers have asked why Stan's name is always first. I can't imagine that this was a joke that Ditko found particularly amusing. The splash page itself is excellent and once again better than the cover. The scorpion swings his tail, knocking over a chimney and sending debris and rock, hurling at Spider-Man who dodges and weaves to get out of the way. Almost 3D in how the bricks are drawn, this is a dynamic start to the issue. We open the next day, which was unusual. Prior to this, the strip had been moving in real time. Even the three-part Spider-Man coward storyline made references to Spider-Man fleeing last month. So to have an issue pick up exactly where the last one left off when it's not a two-parter was one of the first steps on the road to Marvel time. Peter is still being shadowed by the stranger in the pork pie hat, which sounds like a Stig Larson novel, but his spider sense twigs Peter that something isn't right, and Peter clocks the guy following him on the way home. Being Peter, he immediately frets that this guy may have figured out his secret and turns the tables when the man goes to call his employer. This is a great opener. Peter is never more Peter than when he's worrying about something and Ditko uses Shadow very well to convey Peter's stress. Peter looks out of the window at the figure and then turns away, his face shaded on the left as the light covers him from the right-hand side. When he changes to Spider-Man, the blinds cast their lines over Peter covering his face. Spider-Man doesn't really learn anything from his little jaunt, and in fact almost blows his secret to both the Watcher and Aunt May when he's sneaking back into the house, but it's still an intriguing and interesting opener. Who is this guy? Why is he following Peter? What does he want? Sadly, the answer to these questions will just be dismissed rather summarily and never mentioned again. With the next day being a Saturday, Peter heads over to the Bugle to see Betty, where we find J. Jonah Jameson proofreading an article on artificial mutations in animals. And thus, a major plot point cometh. Jonah suddenly hits upon the idea of contacting this scientist Gaia, Dr. Farley Stilwell, and asking him to use this process to eliminate Spider-Man once and for all. At no point does Jonah ponder the legalities of what his plan entails. So enamoured is he of ridding the world of his personal bête noire, he completely forgets that back in issue 15, he told Craven that hunting a man for money is wrong in America. Nevertheless, this causes Jonah to call in some help. The man who has been following Peter Parker. It turns out that Jonah has finally succumbed and wants to know just how unassuming teenager Peter Parker manages to get such dramatic shots of Spider-Man. But this new plan is to take precedence. Jonah, who's apparently now down in the basement, meets with the man, an unsavoury fellow named Mac Gargan, and tells Gargan that this new plan may be dangerous. Gargan doesn't care, as long as it pays well. Mac Gargan is a funny one. On the one hand, we don't really learn anything about him in this story. He appears to be a gun for hire or a PI, but in either case he comes across as a tad shady. 
He does call Jonah boss, which implies some previous familiarity between the two, and it's not beyond the realms of possibility that Jonah would have dealings with down-at-heel private investigators. Jonah and Gargan rush out of the office, now no longer in the basement, right past Peter, Betty and Ned Leeds, and Peter immediately recognises Gargan. In a move I thought quite out of character for Peter, he doesn't immediately follow the twosome to learn whatever it is he can about whatever's going on, instead electing to play gooseberry to Betty and Ned on a trip to the airport. Apparently Ned is off on some European assignment for six months, which is of moderate interest, but surely Peter would have been better following Jonah. Of course, character continuity needs to be put aside, because if Peter had followed Jonah and Gargan to Stillwells, Spider-Man would have been on the scene when what happens next occurs, and possibly would have prevented it from ever happening. What does happen next is Jonah offers $10,000 to Stillwell and Gargan to give Gargan powers greater than those of Spider-Man. In a nice character beat, Stillwell isn't at all sure he wants to do this, and prevaricates about it, but the money proves too much to turn down. The Scorpion's origin is similar to the origin of Captain America. Gargan ingests a serum and then is experimented upon, a procedure that Stillwell manufactures to give him the power of a scorpion. Stillwell frets all the way through the experiments, but still acquiesces, and even makes a costume to heighten the threat. With his costume in place, replete with tail, Gargan starts to exhibit mental issues, becoming more drunk on his power and less likely to obey orders. This was really well handled throughout the story, and only Stillwell realises what is happening, and even then, only after the experiment has taken place. After the melodrama with Betty is over, Spider-Man decides to drop by Jonah to ask why the guy was following Peter. This plan seemed half-baked to me. What was Spider-Man going to say to Jonah? Hey, JJ, why was that guy following Peter Parker? Why do I want to know? No reason at all. Doesn't matter, as Jonah has the scorpion waiting for him. Although I don't know how he knew Spider-Man was going to drop by, and it's time for action. In a rare move for Ditko, Spider-Man gets into close-up, knock-down, drag-out, punch-up with the Scorpion. It doesn't quite go his way. Ditko essentially portrays this as a boxing match, and it really works. The Scorpion's blows feel painful, and Spider-Man is defeated at every turn by a foe who was genetically bred to be more powerful than he. Even his webbing doesn't work thanks to the Scorpion having pincers for fingers. Whilst this is a bit dopey, are the pincers in the costume, or are they in Gargan's hands? Who knows? Jonah watching with manic glee, then panic, then glee again, as the scorpion throws Spider-Man around like a rag doll is both riveting and chilling. This is the first time we've seen Jonah on the verge of mania at the thought of taking Spider-Man out, and it's a chilling insight into his psyche. The scorpion is relentless, pounding on Spider-Man and eventually hoisting him over his head and hurling him into a water tower that shatters under his weight. We've seen Spider-Man defeated before, but never so brutally, and never so badly. The Scorpion revels in this, rebelling against Jonah's control and running away to rob armoured cars. Everything that happens from this point on is on Jonah's head. Again, the issue is almost non-stop action from this point forth. Spider-Man awakens, his costume tattered and torn, but showing how far he's come, he doesn't wallow in self-pity, nor does he retire off to mope. Instead, he throws himself straight back into it, but sadly, too late for the guilt-stricken Farley Stillwell. Stillwell has tracked the Scorpion down with an antidote, but the Scorpion is far too gone to cur. As he flees, Stillwell tries to throw the antidote at the Scorpion, hoping that some of it will seep into his skin. But as he does so, he falls to his death. Spider-Man was always a darker strip than it was ever given credit for, and Stillwell dying for his folly was emblematic of this, although the real culprit, J. Jonah Jameson, gets away scot-free. 
Ditko and Lee ratchet up the tension throughout the back half of the story. Lee still manages to bring an element of comedy to Jonah's predicament, but Ditko's sweaty, panic-stricken interpretation of the character clearly shows that Jonah is bricking it now that the Scorpion has become a far worse threat than Spider-Man ever was. Ditko also ably portrays the Scorpion as becoming more and more deranged in a wonderful sequence of panels that close in on his eyes as they become more insane as time goes on. The fight continues. Ditko has never portrayed a Spider-Man so thoroughly outclassed as here. The Scorpion pummels Spider-Man, crushing him under his tail and smashing rocks at him. The bottom of page 16 sees as beaten and bruised a Spider-Man as we've ever seen, but even here he steadfastly refuses to give in. It's hard not to see this as a precursor to Amazing Spider-Man 233. Lee also rises to the occasion with the dialogue that complements the story magnificently. Whilst there are still a few instances of him spelling out what we're seeing, this is a Stanley at the top of his game, recognising that what Ditko was giving him was gold and rising to the challenge. The Scorpion arrives at the Bugle having decided to kill Jonah. After all, with him dead, no one will know the Scorpion's real name. Jonah shoves Betty out of the door, a gesture she interprets as Jonah trying to save her, but one really driven by desperation. Jonah doesn't want anybody to connect him to the Scorpion. Spider-Man arrives to pull Jonah's fat out of the fire, and fed up with being thrashed, Spider-Man does what Spider-Man does best. He uses his brains. He uses a liquid webbing to seal Scorpion to the floor, and then pounds on the guy, tearing the tail off his back and punching at Scorpion until he falls. There hasn't been a comic book fight scene so satisfying since the annual, but here Lee plays it straight. He doesn't undercut the action with jokes. Here, Spider-Man is literally pulling out all the stops to bring this to an end. It's deadly serious and it's glorious. With the Scorpion defeated, Spidey takes his leave. And what is Jonah's take from all of this? That he's an asshole who needs to take some responsibility for his own actions? No. Jonah's takeaway is that, eventually, everybody with power will abuse it and therefore must be stopped. This is simply great writing. That Jonah is so blinded by his own zeal and self-belief that he doesn't see that that is exactly what is happening to himself is remarkable. Whilst Jonah could often be simple comic relief, this issue shows us the dark side of Jonah Jameson. And it gives his character layers we've never seen before. And what of Peter? For once a superhero battle has consequences. Peter is bruised and battered and has to make up excuses for his appearance to Flash and the gang. Flash teases Peter, stating it was probably an infant that beat Peter up, and Peter, still on an adrenaline high, almost loses his temper with Flash, and comes as close to punching his head off as we've ever seen. These scenes humanise Peter. We don't just come down after an adrenaline high, we remain pumped. And let's be honest, Flash is an asshole. The strip ends with the general public once again believing that Jonah is the conquering hero and Spider-Man a mere side note. And the last image is Peter sewing his costume back up. This is another great issue, although, if I'm honest, it suffers from being so close to the Spider-Man coward storyline. There's still much to like here, though. This is the first time Spider-Man has been so obviously outclassed in a punch-up by a foe, to the extent that he wasn't given time to think. He just got punched on again and again. But in true Spider-Man fashion, he refuses to give in. The Scorpion is an interesting villain in that whilst he wasn't exactly a paragon of virtue before the experiment, we definitely see that the powers affect his mental state. Most Spider-Man villains at this point were irredeemable bastards, but this gives us a slight feeling of empathy towards Matt Garg. And then, there's Jonah. This is all Jonah's fault. 
Yet so deluded is he that he never accepts any responsibility for it, and will even repeat these mistakes in a future issue. Lee excelled at writing irony, and in J. Jonah Jameson he gives himself a great vessel with which to explore a man with great power, albeit of a different kind than Peter, who refuses to accept responsibility. This is really deep stuff, and there are no doubt pages of psychological examination to be written about Jonah by people far more learned than I. Of course, this also takes Jonah and puts him into the position of out-and-out villain, something that his character never really recovers from in the Lee Ditko run, and his actions are never questioned or answered for. It's also notable that Peter leaves this issue without having a single clue what has gone on. He never finds out why Gargan was following him, why Jonah wanted him followed, or even that Jonah was behind the whole thing. As in life, there are no easy endings for Peter. Loose ends aren't all tied up neatly. This is just another day in his life where he was nearly killed, and he's got no idea why. The issue ends with a poster pin-up of Peter Spidey by Ditko that is marvellous. Amazing Spider-Man issue 21's cover continues the trend of being simply gorgeous. The Human Torch, who was practically a co-star at this point, hurls fireballs at Spider-Man's general direction. Spidey swings up at the apex of his web and twists and turns his body in mid-air to avoid the fireballs. Lurking behind a billboard is The Beetle. The white background again really sets off the heroes who are magnificently coloured. Spider-Man in the darker red and blue really looks good, and the Torch's fireballs are well rendered by Ditko. There's some cover copy, but it's largely redundant. Just marvel at the image. Impossible as it may be to believe, the splash page is even better. In a wrecked living room, the beetle looms over Spider-Man as Spidey gets a punch off. The beetle looks to be a larger figure, larger than Spider-Man anyway, as well as looking quite formidable. He has large purple hands that have three sucker-looking fingers, large wings and a purple helmet, who were misses, with large eyes. Despite the terrible colour scheme, a green boiler suit just sets off the ensemble, the beetle looks quite terrifying and a formidable adversary. Where Flies the Beetle is another milestone in the Marvel Age of comics. The opening is a magnificently structured example of comic book storytelling. Within the six panels allotted to page two, we've been introduced to Abner Jenkins, Master Criminal, the Beetle, Johnny Storm, his girlfriend Doris Evans, and Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man. What makes this stunning is Ditko's pacing and Lee's scripting. All the main characters are introduced in these panels, two of which are devoted to each of the players. We see one panel in their civilian guise and another in their superhero or villain persona. The creators also outline the differences between our two teenage protagonists. Peter is busy studying, Johnny is on a date. Johnny takes off in search of the Beatle after learning of his release from prison. Peter dons his Spider-Man outfit simply to get some exercise. Johnny is a thrill-seeker and a show-off. Peter prefers to study alone. This is a valuable life lesson, kids. Peter goes on to have a successful college career whilst Johnny drops out. The difference between the two is also apparent in their superhero lifestyle as well. Whereas Spider-Man terrifies the civilians into running away, the Human Torch is greeted by cheers and applause. As the Torch searches for the Beetle, he little realises that the Beetle has been hunting him, and is unaware that his showing off has attracted the Beetle just as it has turned off Spider-Man, and the three leave unaware that they came so close to each other. There are a couple of noteworthy moments in this short but effective two-page opener. Doris Evans was Johnny Storm's girlfriend in Strange Tales, a truly awful series that Stan attempted to use to catapult the Human Torch to fame as a solo strip that failed at every single term because the scripting and art was terrible. To truly hear a man in pain, listen to Stephen Lacey and I cover those over on Fantasticast. Dory Evans is a shrew. 
She's attracted to the idea of a famous boyfriend, but hates that Johnny has to leave her on occasion and go and, you know, save people. She's a really nasty character and very unlikable. Betty Brandt has had her issues, but she was a delight compared to Doris. However, in this instance, she is right. The Human Torch goes after the Beetle for no reason other than he's just been released from prison. Johnny is evidently a no-second-chances kind of guy. Ditko's art is, as usual, brilliant, especially panel 6 of page 2, but let's give it up to Stan for delivering on the dialogue, which is great. It captures Johnny's massive ego and Peter's more low-key personality wonderfully. There are a few problems, despite the excellent way this is set up. Why does the Beetle change into his armour right outside the prison? Sure, there's no law against him wearing it, or probably using it to fly home, but presumably he could be done for public indecency, and that'd end his trip real quick. Secondly, he's flying around looking for the torch, but wouldn't he have found him if he just headed to the Baxter building? Of course, had the Beetle done all of this, the opener wouldn't be as effective, nor would it have this great panel where the torch flies away from Spider-Man as the Beetle follows him, without any of them knowing it. The strip continues on its merry way. Dory bets Johnny that he can't be the torch for 24 hours, and the Beetle observes the little spat. He decides to get at the torch through Dory, which doesn't explain how he knows her full name, but whatever. Again, Stan's dialogue sparkles with Johnny wondering if Dory ate nails as a baby, and Spidey moaning that he couldn't win a popularity contest if he were the only entrant. The long arm of tragic coincidence reaches out when, the next day, Dory is out shopping and her bags are knocked out of her hand by kids. Who should happen by to help? Why, Peter Parker. She's impressed by Peter, but even more so when he returns her wallet to her that she dropped in all the excitement. This is a great scene showing that Peter has moved on so very far from his original inception. He's not tongue-tied or nervous around Doris. In fact, she's very impressed with how cultured and well-spoken he is compared to Johnny. This is something she happily rubs in Johnny's face when he happens to arrive as Peter leaves. Unbeknownst to both, the Beetle is outside in civilian guise, and in a wonderful example of mirrored storytelling, there is a panel where Peter, Johnny, and Abner Jenkins all walk away from each other, oblivious to one another's presence, just as in earlier in the story. It's also a very good way of setting up how Peter Parker knows where Doris Evans lives later on. Johnny, predictably, reacts like a jerk and dons his Fantastic Four uniform to try and intimidate Peter. This is one of Stan's funniest pieces of work. Johnny struts in on Peter, who is conversing with Betty as they window shop. For some reason, Peter's schoolmates are here as well. Johnny prods at Peter, thinking that wearing his FF uniform is impressing him, and even using the old don't-you-know-I-am gambit, even calls Peter kid, which is rich. Peter immediately deflates Johnny by saying, you're either the human torch or some jerk wearing his pyjamas. Johnny practically accuses Peter of hitting on Dory, which upsets Betty. I don't know why. Doesn't she have two guys on the hook herself at the moment? Still, this pisses Peter off, and he tours the torch's head off with a tirade of verbal abuse that leaves Johnny with egg all over his face. The kids from school are impressed by Peter's moxie, but Flash points out that the torch wouldn't dare attack a normal person and starts needling Johnny himself. Sadly, the torch doesn't burn Flash to a cinder, but takes his leave as Betty tells Peter she'll be walking home alone. This is followed by a simply wonderful character scene, where Peter, angered and upset by the torch, ponders wiping that damn smile off Johnny's face, but that Johnny would never fight Peter Parker, as he's just too weak. As he says all this, he crushes two bricks to rubble in his burr hands. Lee gets a lot of flack for writing what we're seeing, but here, working with an artist he obviously trusts and who is at the top of his game, he puts this scene in the back of the net, with both dialogue and pictures working together in perfect harmony. Perfect comics by two creators at the peak of their powers. 
Spider-Man decides to make a play for Dory himself. He arrives at the house just as the Beetle is about to attack, and after eight pages of perfect setup, all our characters are brought together for the main event. I've talked before on this retrospective about how well some of these stories were constructed, but this may be the best example of that so far. Everything in this story has been wonderfully introduced and set up. Every character has believable motivations for what they're doing, even if, as in the Beatles' case, it's simply revenge against the torch. This issue is Comics 101, lovely listener, and this isn't even the best issue. As Spider-Man arrives, the Beetle, massively put out that Spider-Man may ruin his plans, attacks our webhead, and they begin to fight outside Dory's window. Where Dory's parents are is never explained. This fight scene is populated with more stunning dicto creativity with regards to the fight scenes, my favourite being Spidey being hurled over the Beetle's head, which he quickly turns to his advantage by webbing the Beetle's wings and pulling him off balance. Dory, in a panic, calls Johnny, but due to the bet, he refuses to believe her. Johnny's smug face, contrasted by Dory's typically Ditko sweaty panic, is masterful. The Beetle and Spider-Man suddenly crash through the window, taking the fight inside the Evans household. I did wonder if all this was covered on their insurance. Placing Spider-Man in close quarters combat is always a good move, as it forces him to change his tactics and think, rather than relying on fancy acrobatics and webbing. Such is the case, as the Beetle and Spider-Man start hurling household objects at each other, given neither of them are in their best environment. Ditko goes for more close-up here, and Spidey is reduced to trading blows as opposed to using webbing. The Beetle predictably grabs Dory as a hostage and flies off, and Spider-Man pursues. Johnny arrives at Dory's house too late, but sees the trashed room and webbing, and leaps to the correct conclusion that Spider-Man is involved. He takes to the skies and locates Spidey pretty easily, and what we are treated to next is simply one of the finest superhero scraps ever committed to paper up to this point, and a tour de force for Ditko enthusiasts. The Human Torch is blazing mad and confronts Spider-Man with a volley of fireballs, which Spider-Man must dodge, lest he be crispy crittered. Spidey hurls asbestos webbing at him, but, in a nice continuity touch, the torch burns these off with a quick Nova Flame. Whilst this is sequential action at its finest, it's just a warm-up for page 15, which is gorgeous. The Human Torch is now seriously pissed off, and, for the first two panels at the top of the page, it looks like Spidey may have the upper hand, as he ingeniously creates a paddle to knock back the torch's fireballs, and then succeeds in webbing him up. The torch responds in true fiery fashion, and the final panel of page 15 covers half the page and features the torch unleashed. With a fighting mad expression on his face, he hurls fireballs, circles Spidey in a firewall, and blasts his webbing with a heat shield, causing Spider-Man to take a defensive position. This is simply one of the finest pieces of comic art seen in this strip. Hell, in any comic to this point. This is the Torch using every iota of his power in close quarters combat, and Ditko manages to convey anger, speed, and a truly terrifying power set in a pissed-off, lovesick teen. We've never seen the Torch this angry, and that Ditko manages to get this across in one static image demonstrates his abilities and skill. Of course, all of this would have been avoided had Spidey simply stopped and told the torch what was going on, but in this case, a plot implausibility ignored rewards us in a simply magnificent page of art. And let's face it, action is our reward. For some reason, Ditko then chooses to interrupt the fight by cutting to Jonah, Betty and Aunt May. Even Stan seems surprised by this, choosing to point out that here it is just in case anyone is buying the comic for Jonah. It's a pointless scene. Betty gets all bent out of shape over the fact that Peter isn't home and wonders who the girl is that those boys said he'd been dating. 
Well, nobody said he was dating anybody. And this is quite rich from a girl who is openly flaunting her relationship with Ned Leeds in front of Peter's face at every opportunity. Dick goes back in his A-game on the next page, though, as the fight continues. Finding one of those abandoned buildings that seem to proliferate in the Marvel Universe, the Beetle drops Dory off and Spider-Man and the Torch team up to tackle the Beetle. Stan is also on his A-game with dialogue that is both funny and effective. The Torch's confidence shines through a character trait Spider-Man envies and the back and forth between the characters is amusing. I say team up. Spider-Man and the Torch spend most of the fight getting under each other's feet. The Beetle hurls a section of the wall at Spider-Man, only to have it inadvertently intercepted by the Torch. Then, when the Torch gets the drop on the Beetle, Spider-Man plops himself down in the middle of them. The pair really aren't very good at working together, a nice nod to previous issues. They only manage to take the Beetle out by accident. Both of them come swinging and flying in from opposite directions, and they both smash into him unintentionally. All that being said, the art in this section is magnificent. Ditko's choreography is, as I've noted many times, unsurpassed, and this is one of the finest, fastest and most frenetic fights the strip has attempted so far. This really is something that would be over in a matter of minutes. However, it's funny as well as exciting, and Lee carries this over into the dialogue and captions. With the Beetle trapped, our heroes are unsure of what to do next. Dory flat-out accuses Spider-Man of being in league with the Beetle, but Johnny defends him. Still, Spider-Man offers no defence, no snappy patter. Instead, he simply swings away. He ponders his fate. Why does the Torch, who is no better than he, claim nothing but praise and glory, while Spider-Man himself is a professional fall guy? Is this his lot? To be shunned and loathed no matter what? Ditko closes the issue with Spider-Man stood alone on a chimney stack watching the sunset and pondering his place in the world. Scenes like this elevated the Spider-Man strip. Peter's concerns and worries mirrored his audience. He was, after all, the hero that could be you, and his feelings of alienation resonated with his target audience. Looking at the scene dispassionately, Spider-Man does nothing here to alleviate any fears or concerns. He simply leaves without a word, and even Johnny is unaware if he's a friend or a pain in the ass. Whilst Peter Parker may have grown considerably since the strip began, Spider-Man is still largely a haunted and hated figure, and a lot of this is down to his unwillingness to communicate, and that's what this issue is about. Johnny and Dory's communication problems lead to him not believing her when disaster strikes. Peter and Betty's communication problems have led to the breakdown of their relationship, and Spider-Man's communication problems lead him to a pointless fight with someone that could be a friend and ally. This is a stunning issue. Everything you need to know is pretty much laid out for you, and the story and art are sublime. It all culminates in a moody and atmospheric poster by Ditko of Spider-Man trapped in a searchlight. Issue 22 has one of the most unusual covers of the series so far, in that Spider-Man isn't actually on it. The spider signal shines on the clown and his masters of menace, a.k.a. the Ringmaster's crime circus from issue 16. Spider-Man's shadow looms over the terrified crew. Beautifully coloured, its effectiveness is in how offbeat it is. Presenting the clown and his masters of menace opens with a splash that is more symbolic than a proto-cover. Spider-Man stands arms apart as we, the reader, see his back. In front of him are the crafty clown on a unicycle, the great Gambonos stand on each other's shoulders, the man called Cannonball just kind of hangs around at the back doing nothing in particular, and Princess Python smoulders in what looks like one of Poison Ivy's cast-offs. Stood off to the edge of the panel is the Ringmaster. Stan tells us to take a good long look at him as he won't be around very long. Artie Simek, the letterer, gets a larger credit than usual, but Stan rectifies this by calling this story another one of Lee's living legends and another dazzling Ditko delight. 
It's a great piece of art, but it's largely decorative and could easily be cut off without missing anything. Spider-Man drops by a seedy hotel room to threaten the ringmaster and his circus of crime into not returning to the old ways now they are free from prison. Whilst there, he plants a spider tracer on the ringmaster's hat, showing exactly how much he trusts them all. The crime circus decide that the ringmaster's schemes are as old as his hat and tell him to hit the road, but only after they beat him up a bit. Then, for no logical reason, Princess Python picks the clown as their new leader. This was a tad odd, given that Princess Python wasn't even with them in issue 16. Still, as openers go, this is interesting, in that it's the first time we've seen a criminal gang in comics actually be self-aware enough to recognise that their schemes are stale and out of date. The ringmaster wants to simply move on and try the same old, same old tricks they've already been doing in another town, but Princess Python's had enough, and the gang decide to follow her. Spider-Man terrorising is amusing, especially as it gives Ditko another chance to dust off his sweaty and panicky routine, but the crime posse taking in turns to beat on him actually has us feel a bit sorry for the Ringmaster. The Ringmaster is one of those villains that isn't particularly evil or murderous. He just wants to make a quick book, and crime is the easiest way to accomplish that. At school, a few days later, Peter is studying the work of Henry Pym, which was a nice continuity touch, and we pick up on the Liz Allen subplot, where she seems actively interested in pursuing Peter. She tells him when the bell rings, something he didn't notice, as he was too focused on Pym's book, and then she helps Peter put on his jacket, all the while asking if he will walk her home. Peter demurs, offering no real excuse. He's simply saying he can't, which is fortunate, as Betty is outside school waiting for him. They quickly make up after the events of last issue, and with Ned Leeds apparently all but forgotten, Peter asks Betty to accompany her to an art exhibit that Jonah is sponsoring. Now, having Betty hang around the high school waiting for Peter could be seen as uncomfortable nowadays, but this wasn't written today, it was written 50 years ago. Also, the age difference between Peter and Betty isn't that large, nor is it that big of a deal. I think it helped that Peter was the younger of the two, as Stan had trod of the path of the older man, younger woman before, so this gives a freshness to the Peter-Betty dynamic. It also plays into the idea that Peter is a lot older in his thinking and maturity than his age suggests. The art exhibit stuff is quite funny. One of the paintings is a close-up of a foot, with an unseen person thinking, wish I could draw feet like that, which is apparently Ditko poking fun at letters about his art. Some have suggested that the dialogue was Lee putting Ditko into the issue, especially as the man is not seen, but at least one wag on the supermegamonkey.net website suggested that this was a rather envious Rob Liefeld. By pure coincidence, the insane clown posse is robbing the art gallery and are located in the very next room. The clown rides his unicycle around to distract the patrons, but Jonah is suspicious and wanders off. Peter recognises the clown but can't do anything, and as a result, Jonah is knocked out by Cannonball. This was a tad more ruthless than the strip has been so far. Cannonball really didn't give a toss whether he kills Jonah or not. And whilst Spider-Man's villains aren't squeaky clean, they've really been quite so unconcerned about an innocent death. Given that the Ringmaster is more at home robbing people than murdering them, it's possible that losing his influence has made the gang more ruthless. After the police question everybody, Jonah is taken to the hospital, and Peter drops Betty off at home. He then uses his funny little spider tracer gadget thing to locate the spider tracer signal. Of course, as Stan handily reminds us, Spidey doesn't know the ringmaster has been given the boot by his chums. Fortunately, the ringmaster suffers from the standard Marvel Universe malady. He talks to himself. An awful lot. Spider-Man drops by the Ringmaster, thanks to the Spider-Tracer, and eavesdrop on his one-way conversation. Once inside, he snatches the Ringmaster's hat. 
He turns it over casually in his hands and he uses it to hypnotise the ringmaster into telling Spider-Man where the killer clowns are. Given that they have very little in the way of imagination, the ringmaster believes they will be holed up in his old hideout. After checking up on Jonah, Spidey leaves the ringmaster's hat webbed to the ceiling to keep him occupied. Oddly, his call to the hospital is answered by Betty, who was clearly said to be going home. There's a brief fracas between Spidey and the clowns that almost results in a Spidey defeat when Princess Python hugs him, as apparently Spider-Man won't hit a woman. Whilst the fight scene is as dynamic as ever, it's only really on the next page that it is elevated into the ranks of one of the more interesting fight scenes. The Masters of Menace dogpile on Spider, and he systematically punches them off one by one before finally tackling Cannonball. Spidey makes sure that it was Cannonball who knocked out Jonah before crushing his pointy hat like a Coke can and then punching his lights out. It's a nice moment as it's the first time we've seen that Peter genuinely seems to care about Jonah. Elsewhere, Jonah is revealed to be okay and the Ringmaster's hat falls to the floor, releasing him from its hypnotic thrall. Spider-Man pursues the last member of the team, Princess Python, who tries flirting with Spidey and although Peter certainly seems aroused, when this fails she tries to unmask him. Sadly, the clown sees this and thinks that Python is betraying them, and he tries to betray her first. Princess P lures Spider-Man into a room with a huge real-life python in it, which he fights and defeats. It's probably redundant to point out that Ditko kills this page as Spidey goes all Tarzan, although one does wonder how the hell Princess Python managed to get this thing into the room, given that it's clearly much wider than the doorway. The clown makes off with the paintings, the ringmaster knocks him out and steals them, but he walks right out into the waiting arms of the police. Peter sells his photos to Jonah, now fully recovered, and he forces Peter and Betty to attend the art exhibit again, causing Peter to be late home. As you may have surmised, there's not a lot to say about this issue, and it's one of the weakest in terms of deeper themes and character moments. That's not to say that it is in any way a bad issue. A less-than-stellar Lee Ditko Spider-Man comic is still light-years ahead of most comics that were on the stands at the time, and perhaps even now. Whilst it's true that this may not scale the giddy heights of other issues, it still has all the elements that make a good Lee Ditko Spider-Man comic. Lee's dialogue is genuinely funny in places. He has Peter say, I was never worried about you, Jonah. You were only hit on the head, which is a little dark, but funny, especially when Betty calls him out on it. Jonah's reaction is equally funny. It's been nice working with you, Junior. And this lightness of touch and playfulness is evident throughout the entire issue. There are people out there who wish to belittle Stan and perhaps suggest he wasn't the driving force behind Marvel Comics and take great pleasure in knocking his writing, but when he was at his best, when he was working with creators of Ditko's calibre, he was genuinely amusing in his scripting. For his part, Ditko delivers a plot that is lighter than his usual fur, but no less entertaining. What made the Spider-Man strip so good was that it could vacillate wildly between drama and comedy so easily and often in the same issue. Even in this story, quite straightforward in most respects, J. Jonah Jameson is hovering at death's door and it tackles the topics of revenge and redemption. Yes, there's not a lot of depth to those topics, but at least it's fun. As usual, Ditko's art is top-notch, with his pacing and structure still better than many of his contemporaries, and everything builds nicely to its conclusion. If this isn't in the upper echelons of Spider-Man issues, well, that's just because the upper echelons are some of the best comics ever created. This is simply a good comic, and sometimes that's good enough. Issue 23 sees the return of the Green Goblin. Be still my heart. The cover is excellent, though. Ditko again uses white space to great effect and contrasts the colours of the protagonist's costumes with the greys of the machinery that Spider-Man is swinging around. 
This time our hero is on the defensive as the goblin flies after him, hurling pumpkin bombs and yanking his webbing to pull our hero off balance. Ditko is again darkening the blues and reds of Spider-Man's costume to great effect and the goblin actually looks like a proper threat. Don't waste a minute, runs the cover copy. You've got to see Spider-Man in action against the Goblin and the Gangsters, which is also the title of the story. In a reversal of the usual norms, the splash page is not as good as the cover. The Goblin is prancing around, pumpkin bombs exploding, as the gangsters of the title attack Spider-Man. It's very busy, although it does show the trouble that Spider-Man is in this time. The story opens with the Green Goblin trying to muscle in on Lucky Lobo's mob in his attempts to become the crime lord of New York City. It's a playful opening with the Goblin accelerating his plans to control the New York underworld, but Stan can't help mocking the Goblin's costume again, this time having one of Lobo's mobsters say, Dig that corny costume, will ya? Given that this guy is dressed like a 1940s rapscallion, maybe he shouldn't throw any stones... Despite the corny costume, the goblin still owns the mobsters, blasting them with his finger bangers and blinding them with a couple of well-placed pumpkin bombs from out of his always-handy man purse. The cops see the goblin leave and lean on Lobo, saying they'll get him soon. Conveniently, a reporter is with him. This is an intriguing opener and lends credence to the claim that Ditko wanted Spider-Man to be more of a crime noir strip than some of the other superhero titles of the time. We cut to the next day, a Saturday, like in the previous issue, and we find a Peter Parker who has had a well-deserved lie-in. He pops up into the attic to learn his Spider-Man costume is still wet from washing it last night. Rarely, if ever, did we see a superhero character clean his costume, let alone be unable to wear it because it was still wet, and this showed how committed the strip was to attempting to add at least a measure of reality to the fantasy. Peter elects not to wear a damp spider suit under his clothes, and we see, as Peter dresses, that he's not as square as he used to be. He's abandoned the tank tops and pocket protectors, and instead dons a natty black shirt, white jacket ensemble that actually makes him look pretty mod. I think that's what kids in the 60s said. He promises Aunt May he won't be late and heads to the library, but a special edition of the Bugle informs him of the Goblin's latest antics, and he heads over there instead. He learns that Jonah has rehired Frederick Foswell, the big man from issue 10. Foswell is the closest we have to a suspect as to who may be behind the Goblin's mask, but his being in jail for 13 issues kind of takes him off the table. Peter is his usual judgmental self when it comes to Foswell, and again we see that Peter is pretty unforgiving of people after they make a mishap. He's already been steadfastly against Dr. Octopus being released from jail, he's dropped by the ringmaster and his gang and warned them off, and now he's asking Jonah why he's trusting Foswell again. Jonah says it's because he oozes the milk of human kindness, but it makes sense that Jonah would do this. Foswell will have the kind of underworld contacts that would lead to good stories. Peter drops by Betty and snoops around on her desk, where he finds a letter from Ned Leeds. He gets pretty annoyed when Betty doesn't mention it later, but we readers, being privy to her thoughts, learn that this is an oversight. If it's easy to read these scenes as Peter being a bit of a dick, well, that's because he's being a bit of a dick. He even delights at seeing Foswell outside the building, talking to a shady-looking fella, and decides to tail him as Spider-Man. He can't, due to not having his costume, but these scenes do humanise Peter. He's not infallible or perfect. He's a jealous boyfriend, and sometimes intolerant of others. These are all traits we are familiar with as readers, and it enables us to relate to Peter a little bit more. The plot thickens as the Goblin meets with one of Lobo's men, who is double-crossing him. He gives the Goblin a complete list of the money Lobo earned from property he owns, information the tax bureau would have a field day with. Foswell then gives this information to Jonah, who takes it to the police. 
Whilst this certainly points towards Foswell being the goblin, what's interesting is that, for once, Jonah is at his exclusive men's club rather than the bugle. And Norman Osborne can clearly be seen in the background of two separate panels. Maybe Ditko did know what he was doing. With his costume dry, Spider-Man makes the scene, blundering into a police raid that has all been orchestrated by the Green Goblin. Spotting Spider-Man, the Goblin lures Spidey into Lobo's lure and then bails out, leaving Spider-Man to deal with the mobsters. This scene is an oddity. Whilst it's great to see the Green Goblin actually doing something, and his machinations and double dealings are impressive, Spider-Man follows the Goblin because he thinks the Goblin's turned over a new leaf and is helping the police bring Lobo in. Spider-Man, as we've established, wasn't forgiving Dr. Octopus, the Ringmaster, or Frederick Foswell a second chance, even after they've all been to prison and served their time. But the Goblin? Yeah, sure. We'll accept he's now on the side of the Angels, with no evidence whatsoever. Still, this puts Spider-Man in a battle with mobsters, which is always a treat, especially when Ditko throws in some new tricks, such as Spidey webbing somebody's back and then throwing them at a wall so he sticks there, or sticking the mobsters to the floor with his goo. There's a lot of action in these two pages, with Spider-Man dodging bullets, punches and kicks with aplomb. He even takes a moment in the middle of the fight to call out May. This was one of the funniest scenes in the comic. Spider-Man webs up a doorway, and Ditko cuts between the domestic bliss of a teenager calling his aunt to see how she is, with a bunch of mobsters banging the door down to get at him. How he gets out of it is equally amusing. Spider-Man stands in the middle of the room as the mobsters enter. He then lowers his arms, and a giant web falls from the roof, ensnaring all of them in one go. I like it when Spider-Man uses his brains. With all of the men out for the count, Spider-Man catches up with the increasingly misnamed Lucky Lobo, and he spills the beans that this is all a con by the Goblin to take over. Spider-Man pursues the Goblin for a four-page fight scene that is really quite stunning. Unlike the lethargically paced fights of today, this fight takes place high in the skies of New York, down in the warehouse buildings, and then back up into the clouds, and Ditko manages to create, for the first time, a legitimately even battle between the duo. Spider-Man and the Goblin are on equal footing here, and neither ever really gains the upper hand in the battle. The finale is brilliant. The Goblin flees when he empties out his man bag, and Spider-Man suddenly finds himself out of web fluid. Refusing to give up, by this point a hallmark of the character, Spider-Man propels himself into the sky after the Goblin, and misses. This is a great scene, with Spider-Man having to rely on his skill, and no small amount of luck, to not become a smear on the road. As you may expect, lovely listener, Ditko crushes this, capturing the drama and excitement in his own inimitable style. The issue is wrapped up with the Goblin discovering that Lobo's entire gang have been locked up, which defeats the entire point of his plan. Peter drops by the bugle for no reason at all other than to be wary of Foswell, and at home he frets that he's currently got nothing to fret about. The Goblin and the Gangsters is a really entertaining and enjoyable issue. The Goblin actually feels like a threat in this story, and there is a definite motivation behind his actions. There's still no real reason for his mad-on for Spider-Man, but in this issue that's not even relevant. Spider-Man isn't even factored into the Goblin's plans. The Peter-Betty romance seems to be spinning its wheels, with Peter jealous over the letter from Ned, even though he didn't get jealous when she was actually going out with him. The addition of Foswell is great, Interestingly, we never get any thought balloons from Foswell. He's as big a mystery to us as he is to Peter. The issue closes with another poster featuring Spider-Man in very film noir lighting, surrounded by his cast of colourful characters and enemies, and the letters page has correspondence from Jim Shooter. Just going back to the poster for a second, it's nice that the top as well also features Stan and Steve, 
So that was a nice touch that both creators are featured on the poster. We will knock that one on the head, though, because uh, I think we've gone for well over an hour. When we come back, we will have some really, really good issues. Peter Parker will graduate high school. The second annual, where Spider-Man meets Doctor Strange. The Man in the Crime Master's Mask, which is a a classic issue. And uh, one of my all-time favourites, Spider-Man Goes Mad. That will be the next time I adjourn to do an episode about Lee Deco Spider-Man. I'll play a trailer and plug somebody else's show that you should listen to. And then when we come back, we'll do a couple of the emails that have been loitering around in the bottom of the metaphorical email sack. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert! All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You're Starfleet officers! Now start acting like it! Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on TwoTrueFreaks.com. Okay, we're back. Let's have a, a rummage around in the email sack. Our first email tonight is about the Blast Lead It Co-Spider-Man issue. It's from Trey Hooks. Hello, Trey. Trey says, I really enjoyed the latest instalment of Palace of Glittering Delights. I'm in complete agreement with you on the Green Goblin. I've read the first three or so masterworks, and the only time the Goblin worked was when he was trying to take over the local crime syndicates in the early 20s, which we've just covered. It's like I planned this shit, isn't it? He definitely gets rated because of what he would become, but at the time the big reveal of his identity came round, he was the father of the guy that Peter sometimes talked to at school. Peter and Harry barely had a relationship. When discussing issue 16, you hit the nail on the head as to why early Daredevil could be so painful to read. And it's not just that they're trying to introduce Cell Daredevil, but the weakest part of him is that he's a blind guy who has a different type of sense. It's a weakness that is compensated for, so it isn't really a weakness. You and Steve sometimes mentioned how Stan didn't always trust the artist to tell the story in Fantasticast. With Daredevil, Everett, Orlando and Wood didn't have the means to convey sound, scent or the other factors making up the radar sense. So you got a lot of, I must time this just right, otherwise I will be in trouble when he connects with that wrench. I can tell he is about to swing at me. By his sharp intake of breath, the sound of his shoes on concrete signifying he has shifted his weight to raise his arm, and the slight smell of grease and metal, which can only mean one thing. That's actually quite a good piss take of Stan's dialogue. <laughs> um, yeah, see, I don't have the problem with early Daredevil that you did. My problem with early Daredevil is just trying to be Spider-Man. And it takes a while for Daredevil to find his feet. But certainly by the time Gene Colan comes on board, I think there's some good stuff in Daredevil. And I, I, I don't think it deserves the rep that Daredevil only got good when Frank Miller came along. If you want to listen to a really good Daredevil podcast, um, J. David Wheater's Dave's Daredevil podcast, which I, I strongly urge that you go and check out. Not least because it's a really good show. Trey continues, My favourite issue out of these is the annual. My favourite bit is when the exhausted Spider-Man just empties his web shooters, trying to entangle Octavius in the tank, and the way Ditko conveys the way they spiral and hang in the water. 
Something I don't think he gets enough credit for is the way he conveyed weight and fluidity. I know I'm comparing two masters, but look at the ramrod straightway Kirby would draw a lasso or rope being thrown over or at Captain America. And the way Ditko handles Montana's lasso in Amazing Spider-Man issue 19, with the way the rope twists as Spider-Man jumps through it, was funny. You mentioned I just talked about that just earlier on. That's, that's, uh, again, it's like I planned this shit. Another great episode, keep them coming, Trey Hooks, spinnerack.blogspot.com. Well, thank you, Trey. It's nice that uh, you mentioned a lot of stuff in there that we either just talked about in the actual episode. So it seemed like really good synergy. Uh, and again, if you're not checking out Dave's Daredevil podcast, I urge you to do so, because it's really good. Patrick Delmore was the next person to email in with Lee Ramita Spider-Man all fan requests. Hi, Andy. Hi, Patrick. I'm replying to your request for feedback about future Spider-Man episodes. I say keep going with Spidey intermittently up to issue 50. After that, maybe do a show on the Ramita Draw newspaper strips. That is actually a really good idea. Because I've toyed with the idea of doing a newspaper strip episode. And looking at, I don't know, Al Williamson's Flash Gordon and the Archie Goodwin album from Star Wars and Spider-Man. But I don't really know a lot about newspaper strips. But I've got the first two volumes of the Spider-Man newspaper strips trade, as well as the 70s paperback that printed a number of them as well. So certainly covering the Spider-Man newspaper strips, that's a possibility. Because it's interesting to see how they diverge from the actual comic book. So that's an intriguing idea, and it's in the book for a possible future show, so thank you for suggesting it. I agree with you that talking about how comics made you feel is a lot more interesting than an index show, continues Patrick. I have very definite memories of were and how old I was whilst reading Lee Ditko's Spider-Man. Some of my favourite moments from Hey Kids Comics are your stories of buying Marvel Tales with your grandfather, and your wife insisting that you continue to buy untold tales of Spider-Man after your son was born. I started typing a long story about my introduction to Untold Tales, but I think I'll save it for when, if you get around to doing an episode on the subject. Looking forward to more great shows and stories in the future, Patrick. And again, suggesting Untold Tales. That's an excellent idea. What do you think about that, listeners? What do you think about following up the Lee Ditko with Untold Tales in a similar vein to how I've done this, and then going back to Lee and Ramita at some point in the future? In addition to mixing in the usual nostalgia of 70s and 80s sci-fi and books and, and all of that stuff. Because, as I've mentioned before, I really do want to do my Space Above and Beyond episode. And um, Angela and I are working on the Supernatural episode as we speak. So if you're in it to listen to that kind of thing, none of that's going away. But at the same time, with Hey Kids Comics not being a regular thing anymore, I need to, you know, talk about comics somewhere. And this way I don't have to bore Michael by making him read lots of Spider-Man comics all the time. Whereas I could just happily do a Spider-Man show and, and be done with it. Anyway, some good ideas though, Patrick. We'll, uh, we'll throw them in the blender and see what happens. Our next email tonight is Palace of Wonderful Delights from Chris and Cindy Franklin, host of Supermates, which is now on the Fire and Water Podcast Network which is also the host of uh, some great shows, so go and check them out as well. And if you do go and do that, I think you need to tell Shag Matthews that he owes me money. Because I can't remember the last time he plugged one of my shows. Uh, Hi, Andy. Hi, Christopher. Good show on the Wonder Woman TV pilots. I don't really have much to add since I pretty much agreed with everything you said. In the case of Linda Carter, Gal Gadot has some big shoes to fill, especially since we've had no actual live-action version of Wonder Woman in between the two. Well, other than that unsold pilot film for a few years back, that doesn't count. 
Carter's sincerity elevated the show past any shortcomings it often had. The apparent cheapness of both pilots, like the use of unconvincing stock footage in the first one, would have killed other shows, but her star power carries this entire series. Lyle Wagoner. I've never been able to figure out if that was just his chosen character in every production he was in, or if he was really limited as an actor. I've never seen him play anything but the charming, if somewhat dull-witted, leading man type. And to think he was almost Batman instead of Adam West. That was a completely different life, if that happened. Do you know what? Somebody once pointed out that there is... If there's any one place where pop culture could have just spun off its axis... It's that in 1966, early 66, both William Shatner and Adam West starred in a pilot film for a TV series about Alexander the Great. And if that pilot had sold, Adam West wouldn't have been available for Batman and William Shatner wouldn't have been available for Star Trek. And just imagine how different pop culture would be if that had happened. Lyle Wagner would have been Batman, and maybe Star Trek would have never gone past the first pilot with Jeffrey Hunter. It's weird to think of that. There's an alternate universe somewhere where that's the case. Chris continues, As for the two versions of the series, I definitely prefer the World War II-era episodes. The CBS version of the show could have swapped scripts with Six Million Dollar Man or Bionic Woman, and you wouldn't have known the difference. Cindy and I covered the second pilot on Supermates and enjoyed it more than we anticipated, but it's still not the same as that first season with its magical look back at a more innocent era. Yeah... I, like I say, I am, I am very tempted to, to watch. I, I have caught a couple of 70s era episodes when it got rerun on the Horror Channel recently. For some reason, I never saw any World War II ones, although they did show them. But I was more interested in the World War II setting than the 70s setting. Like you say, it just felt like Charlie's Angels. Even though, obviously, Linda Carter could, could perfectly fill out an hour of, of entertainment. As for Lee Ramita continues Chris I'd love to see you carry on as with Lee Ditko I really enjoy this particular take not being bogged down with worrying about bullpen bulletins ads etc seems to free up more time for a critical analysis in a way well for not having much to add I seem to have done so take care Chris uh, thank you Chris always nice to hear from Chris and again go to the Fire and Water podcast network and check out Supermates because it's a great show um, Chris and Cindy are very entertaining very funny they're off joined by the children or one of the children, anyway. I think the, the daughter may be a tad young for it, yeah. But that's always a fun listen. Uh, so go and listen to it, because it's, it's a fun show. Speaking of fun shows, Gene Hendricks has emailed in with wonderful episode. Andy, sorry about the pun, but you did a great job covering the Wonder Woman pilots. Like you, I first came across the TV show when it had been moved to modern day, and think that coloured my perception of the original World War II episodes. Diana Prince as a super spy was much more to my taste, since it was more of a superhero show than a wartime period piece. I seem to be in the minority, though, though as most people that I hear talk about the series prefer the original season. As you said, Linda Carter is right up there with Christopher Reeve and Chris Evans as fully embodying an earnest law and order hero with absolutely no hint of irony. It's a shame that it has been until 2016 for us to get another live-action Wonder Woman, but Carter really is a hard act to follow. As for Spider-Man, I'm happy to listen to you talk about the wall crawler in whatever way you want. You obviously have a passion for the character, so whatever you want to do is fine with me. Gene. P.S. Your description of the Green Goblin as Tony Soprano in funny clothes made for a really bad mental image. Cheers. <laughs> Sorry about that. I hope I didn't stick in your head. Um, Gene hosts um, The Hammer Strikes, which is a, a podcast on Two True Freaks, along with the Quantum Cast and Anime Freaks. And I was very fortunate enough to be able to speak to Gene recently, and the most recent episode that he's up as of this recording is me and Gene discussing seminal 80s action classic the fall guy if you've not had that in your life 
you really need to. But Dean's a good guy, and his shows are also very, very good. In fact, I'm not endorsing any show this week that isn't really, really good. So go and check them out. Our final email tonight is a wonderful Palace of Glittering Delights episode. Jason Trenner has emailed in. Greetings! Well, this was interesting. I really can't remember watching the 70s Wonder Woman show, but to be frank, the amount of stuff I watched in the 80s and 90s is kind of huge. I really don't have much to say on the first pilot, and just two things to say on the second one. I loved your commentary, poking a few of the flaws, but I really can't think of anything beyond those comments. Mallory Archer getting her butt kicked by Wonder Woman. Shocked that that has not been a gag on that show. And Wonder Woman throwing a tiara like a boomerang. She beats Sailor Moon to that trick by about 20 years. Love the show and look forward to seeing what is next in the palace. Well, thank you very much, Jason. If you would like to be like Jason, and Jean, and Chris, and Trey, and Patrick, by emailing in and letting me know what you think or what you'd like to hear, because more than any other show I do, this one is open to, um, to suggestions. Uh, John Wilson suggested covering some more Sergeant Fury, which I'll be for. I'd be all for, sorry. Now that I have Shield of the Complete Collection Marvel Omnibus, which uh, Angela, my wife, bought me for Christmas. So that's another thing that's in the book as a, a potential thing for the future. You want to email me? It's on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. Still using that email address for this particular show. And again, if you want to hear me on other things, uh, if you like me talking about Lee Ditko's 60s Spider-Man, uh, over on the Fantasticast, which is ffcast.libson.com, Stephen Lacey and I have been working our way through every single issue of the Fantastic Four. We're now well into the early 1970s, so Stan and Jack have long gone, but that's worth coming and having a listen to. We have a lot of fun on that show. Uh, every now and again, I crop up on Views for the Long Box with Mr. Michael Bailey, and I host Listen to the Prophets with Paul Spataro which is all about the red-headed stepchild of the Star Trek franchise, Deep Space Nine. Hey Kids Comics is still intermittent. That still happens whenever Michael comes home. So any word that you want to check us out, feel free to do so. It's, it'd be nice to have you. It's always nice to have people listening. Uh, as usual, if you want to buy something from Amazon, if you want to do it through the Two True Freaks Network webpage, we get a kickback, which doesn't cost you any more, but helps us produce more content. Uh, with regards to what's next time, next time is a very special episode. Next time is um, myself, Paul Spatero, and Sean Engel talking about the Firefly pilot episode, Serenity. So I hope you'll join us for that. See you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>